Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. Walking the parallel path of joy and suffering, God has been faithful. If anyone hears anything I have to say today, it is, he never left me. I wrestled with him. I lamented. I used my faith in an active way to say, show me, show me in your word. How am I supposed to keep going? And so it really forced me, I think the closest I have ever been to God was when I was at that loneliest point in that year. That is Julie Hall, a Christian therapist describing in part the days following the loss of her husband, leaving her suddenly a single mom. The name of this program is Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was a golden boy. All we can do right now is come together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. Welcome to Life Support, hosted by Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, a trauma survivor himself. My name is Steve Johnson, director of Five Stone Media, a co-sponsor of this program, and our goal is to use story to bring hope and healing for those in need of change. And now, let's join the conversation between Julie Hall and Pastor Paul. It's great to have you here on Life Support, and we're going to be talking about more important issues today, and I have a very special guest here. It's Julie Hall, who is a therapist in private practice. She specializes in many of the things that we want to talk about, grief and anxiety and depression and all of those types of things. And we're going to help you maybe get some tools to walk through this pandemic as you're, like many of us, trying to find your way along and it's difficult. But first, we want to hear a story that Julie has gone through to kind of set the stage. And it's not an easy story to tell. And I really appreciate you being here, Julie. It's nice of you to come by. Um, take us into your story and it, did your story feed into who you are now and what you do for a living? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I love being here and I love your program. Um, I'm going to start out telling my story when it starts 20 years ago, and then it will definitely answer that question. Um, I'm definitely a different person than I was 20 years ago as a result of uh, the story that God had written, it definitely is not a story I would have written. Um, and having said that, I also know it's written by his pen, and I do believe that um, it's the larger story that he wants me to be a part of. So I will start my story 20 years ago. I married the love of my life. I married this man that had a great big smile and an even bigger heart. He was um, just a really stellar human being. He was a man of faith. Two years later, we um, welcomed our son into our life. And when I met Ken, he had two uh, teenage children. So we were a family of five and a blended family. And I love how God just builds families. And I pretty much had a very protected, um, sweet little life and sweet little world. And my worldview was tiny. And it was completely rocked and completely shaken when we found out that Ken, who was young and healthy and a long-distance runner, was diagnosed with a rare form of lung cancer. So we were completely destroyed and devastated. And how we chose to deal with that news was how we really chose to do almost everything. We 
you know, went to the Lord in prayer, we begged, we lamented, we prayed, and then we went into action. And this was a man that wanted to live so, so badly. So we put um, my son in the care of friends and we traveled all over the country to try to find help for him in a clinical trial or a new miracle drug or, you know, just any of those sorts of things that we could do for him. And none of those things were happening. And in the 18 months that he um, went through this trial and eventually went into the arms of Jesus in 2013, he was such an exemplary um, person in his faith. He really believed that, you know, he would be the miracle. He really believed that he was going to be that guy that would be able to tell that story. And it was a different story that he got to tell, and God did heal him. He healed him in heaven. He did not heal him on earth. So that was definitely for me, as I was the surviving spouse, a really, really hard thing, a crisis in my faith. Again, like I said, my perfect little world was just rocked and shattered, and I didn't do so well. Uh, the first year, so many things happened that continued to shake my world, and I continued to really have to search uh, my heart and search for God, and it didn't really feel like he was there. Um, so Ken died in uh, February of 2013. Uh, my son and I were in a serious car accident shortly after that, and our car was totaled. We both walked away um, without a scratch, emotionally scarred, but absolutely physically intact. And a couple months after that, it was Father's Day, and my son had been at a sleepover up the street with his best friend, Jake, and I was watching my friend's one-year-old. And it's Sunday morning, I'm ready to go to church, and I've got the baby, and I start to walk outside, and I see Jake, my son's little friend, running down the street in his pajamas, in his bare feet, and I knew, my heart just sunk, I knew this was not good, and this was too weird. And so he said, Sam is in an ambulance and you need to come. So I ran up the street and I did catch the ambulance and I handed the baby over and I got in the ambulance with Sam. And he had lost consciousness. He was just barely 12 years old at this time. And, you know, the irony and the other layer of just pain was this was Father's Day. This was the first Father's Day without his dad. And we are in an ambulance going to Children's Hospital because my son is unconscious. Um, so we got to Children's Hospital, and they got him stabilized, and he had had a grand mal seizure. And he had had no—again, he was another really healthy guy. Um, he had had no symptoms whatsoever in the 12 years of his young life. And I remember um, stepping outside of his room at the hospital— you know, it's like the round area where the nurse's station is. And I remember stepping out, and I remember shaking my fist and looking up at God and saying, you took Ken. You can't have him. I will not let you. And I can tell you, you know, there have only been very few times in my life when I have had complete and utter despair that I really know what despair means, and that was one of them. I honestly could not get my head around the fact that all of this was happening in with just in such a short period of time. So this was what I call in my work when I work with grieving people. This is um, cumulative grief. This is a layer of grief, and this is a multiple succession of losses 
you're not even able to go through and make meaning from your prior loss and you are hit with another um, serious loss. So my journey has been really, really difficult. I can say walking the parallel path of joy and suffering, God has been faithful. If anyone hears anything I have to say today, it is he never left me. I wrestled with him. I lamented. I used my faith in an active way to say, show me, show me in your word. How am I supposed to keep going? And so it really forced me, I think the closest I have ever been to God was when I was at that loneliest point in that year. The other thing that happened in that year, I was sexually assaulted by someone I knew. This was a family friend and I was extremely vulnerable and I was extremely sad. And that again was um, another reason to to really doubt what I was doing here and what God had had planned for me. So, you know, as I said earlier about God writing our story, and I do, I believe my story is a part of the larger redemptive story of God's plan. And I do think God is using my story and all of our stories as we share it and glorify him um, to, to point people to Jesus. That's what I would like you to see in my story. Um, I clung to Jesus, you know, that Jesus was all I had. And I realized Jesus was all I needed. That is what I needed. Everything else I was going to, you know, be able to go back to the word. And I had to believe, you know, I had to believe it didn't look like it. It didn't look like I had God with me, but I had to go back to the promises and I had to trust the unseen and I had to keep doing that. And it wasn't easy and I wasn't really good at it. And But I had to train it over my heart. I had to keep going back and saying, every morning when I got up, I choose to believe your promises. I don't see you. I don't hear you right now. But I choose to believe your promises. Um, Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So if he's perfecting my faith, I need to be yielded to him and be in that posture. I can't make this happen. I can't slap a scripture on it any more than I can for someone else and say, pray harder. You know, that's a, a part in the story in the 18 months that Ken was sick that was really, really difficult. Uh, we were very active in our church and we were walking this journey with another family, another couple, and he had a very similar lung cancer. His, however, was different in the fact he could ha he had his one lobe removed and he was able to He's still alive today, and Ken has been gone seven years. And both families, believers, both families, you know, really trusting in God, very similar medical diagnoses, completely different outcomes. And so I remember a couple people that came to pray with us when Ken was really sick towards the end. And someone said to me, you know, if your faith were stronger, he would be healed. If you can pray more, God will heal him increase your faith and those sorts of things. And, you know, I didn't think about it back then because I was so in the moment of the pain and just, you know, myofocused just on Ken. But now when I look back on that, I think, you know, God really protected me from that hurt. Um, but that was a really, really hurtful, unhelpful, um, unbiblical thing to say, as I know now when I look back on it. So, what that does for me now when I come along people that are in um, the last stages of death, and I have worked as a hospital chaplain, so I have sat with people, and I have walked in the valley of the shadow of death with many, many people, 
And, you know, what God has shown me there is it's simply a ministry of presence. I can't fix them. I can't put a silver lining on their story. Um, but I can just be Jesus with skin on by sitting there next to them and just being. And I know it's... But we desperately want to fix people. And I've been exactly where you are. We'll be back to the conversation with Julie Hall in just a moment. You know, Pastor Paul is hosting this program from a unique perspective. After losing his first wife to cancer, he then experienced the homicide of his young adult son, Taylor. And that's what life support really is all about, survivors in discussion with other survivors. My name is Steve Johnson, Executive Director of Five Stone Media, and we are so pleased to be a co-sponsor of this program. For a video version of this and for other conversations like this, you can visit fivestonemedia.com slash life support. And now back to this conversation between Pastor Paul and therapist Julie Hall. Everybody wants to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Can't fix this. Right. This is God's thing. Mm -hmm. And really what it comes down to is it's you and God. Others can come around side of you, alongside of you. And, but people in America, I think, just want us to snap our fingers, come back to the way you were, let's get this over with, let's move on. And that's where all of that bad theology comes from, I think, and a lot of that pressure. And you really felt that. Mm -hmm. And that's something more that you have to deal with. And all of a sudden, the sufferer then becomes the one who has to teach, the one who has to show others, right? Right. I love that you said that because, you know, you may have experienced this too. It became where I had to console people. I had to make them feel better about the fact that they didn't know what to say. Right? Right. Um, and, you know, the, the other things that people said, which, you know, I, I really believe and I want to believe from this posture that people have good intentions. We have no grief fluency. We have no grief literacy in this country. We need to rebrand what it is. It's not the enemy. It's not, you know, it is something that is going to happen to everyone. It is inevitable. It's not, you know, if you will grieve, it's when you will grieve. So again, you know, it's, this is a really good place to, to say the difference between sympathy and empathy. And I think this is so huge. And yet I think it's so overlooked because we're trained our entire life how to acquire things how to get the job, how to get the guy, how to get the girl, how to get the promotion once we got the job, you know. And so we're taught and, and our culture, you know, comes alongside and reinforces that. But no one ever teaches us what do we do when we lose something, you know. And I think that's a really hard thing. But the sympathy, empathy. Okay, empathy is sorrowing with someone. Sympathy is sorrowing for someone. And just the very nature of that, empathy is picture coming alongside being next to someone and sympathy is oh I feel so badly for you that's not my story I don't know anything it's a whole different dynamic and it sets a whole different tone so if you start out with at least that is not sympathy and that is not empathy at least people said to me you're young you'll get married again I just had a friend that had a miscarriage someone said to her at least you know you can get pregnant um, someone else, a friend of ours, their a couple is going through a divorce, and someone said to her, at least you were married for a while. I haven't been married. So if it starts at out... At least your son's in heaven. Yeah, exactly, Paul. Exactly. You heard that? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter mm -mm. at that moment. I mean, it matters. 
Yeah. But it doesn't take the pain away. No. So I understand exactly where you're going with that. Yep. But don't but don't you think that that comes from? I mean, I think you're right. I think people mean well, um, but it, that's where bad theology begins to emerge too, because there's this feeling that God could couldn't be in that if it's not uh, what we would consider to be good or the right plan or you know we moved and I got this job and I got fired and it couldn't have been God's plan or you know that man lived and my husband didn't so that couldn't be God's plan and we've got God in this box it seems mm -hmm. right and God's doing whatever he's doing for his good purposes and that's where faith grows from but mm. it's really hard painful it's really hard and really painful. And again, you know, I'm so glad you said that because it moves you, at least in my situation, I'll speak for myself, it moved me to a place where I actually know, I don't get to know everything about everything that he has. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to admit because, you know, we're self-sufficient people, we're, you know, high capacity people. But no, he says that's where it comes in. I mean, if I could fix the people that I see in my practice, why would they need a savior? If I could come in and rescue them, I can't, you know, I can sit with them in their pain. I can point them to Jesus. I can give them actual tangible resources and tools to cope, but I can't. What would that. you say to someone that's listening right now who is going through some kind of a loss and the church has become an unsafe place for them? They, their friend group has pulled away from them or they feel like they're being pressured by the people they once could be transparent with and they're lonely and they're isolated what could what could be a first step toward engaging others or engaging their friend group again or moving toward Christ what would you say to them um, I would say first of all being able to identify a safe person okay mm -hmm. so and whether that safe person be someone you work with or someone at church or someone in your friend group Someone, again, and you will know this person is a safe person because here's what they won't do. They won't try to fix you. They won't try to give you advice. They won't sugarcoat your pain. You will know a safe person. A safe person will be able to sit with you when you're having a big, messy emotion. They, you know, think of it this way. I like to say, you know, I hope everyone has a life team, but it's not realistic that everyone has a life team. So if you could just have a life person, if you could find that one person, again, that can be your container, that can sit with you in all of it and just be okay with you not being okay. I think the, you know, the biggest feeling that we can ever get that we matter is when we feel listened to, when we actually feel heard. And it requires very little words, come, you know, come to find out. It's really finding that person that can be with you. So narrow it down mm -hmm. and don't feel guilty for not having everybody in that safe place because people will make you feel like they you, they deserve to be in your space. Yeah. But they don't, do they? No, they don't. And actually it goes back to what I said earlier. You know, there will be people we will come along in our story with that have the grief fluency is what I call it. They have been through something hard. So they are going to show up differently for you. They are going to have that empathy, whether they actually know that or not. But there are those people that have their parents and their grandparents and have not lost, have not experienced loss at any level, they will most likely not be the person that will be your safe person. I always struggled with, and I still do, 
how much do I talk about it? And when are people going to get tired of me talking about it? And that makes it hard to interact with people at times because it's such a large part of who I am, the events that have happened in my life, that I want people to get tired of me. Does that make any sense? Totally makes sense. And I've been in your shoes, exactly. So C.S. Lewis has this um, excerpt in one of his books, and he said after he lost his wife, he felt like he was a death head. Mm. Like when people saw him coming, they were like, oh, man, you know, we're going to be talking about this all over again. And I, I feel like, you know, there's just that tension that I so relate to you with. It's like, oh, my gosh, I would love to talk about Ken all day long. And do I talk too much about him? And I asked a friend, and she's like, no. You actually think you do. And, I'm, and I thought, you know what? I must be having all those conversations. I'm talking to him in my head. So I'm really not like burning you out. And she said, no, you're really not. But I also think if you are a person that does at any stage that you're in, in your grief, needs to talk about your loved one excessively, find that person that can listen and do it. Please give yourself permission to mm -hmm. do it. So let's just, in the, in the short time we have left in uh, this time we have together, by the way, my guest is Julie Hall, and she's kind enough to be here. She's a therapist in private practice and is telling her own story about the loss of her husband, Ken, and some other issues that she's been dealing with. Um, I guess let's go back to Jesus again. What specifically have you learned about Jesus through this time of trial in your life or you can look back and go, you know that, I kind of knew that before, but wow, that's really become real to me now. Um, I think the, the most, the highlight of that, the answer to that question is, he has shown me that people are the delivery system of his grace. He uses us. This is what, this is why my story is the way it is. This is what he has for me right now in this season. So he uses people that are completely unqualified, mm -hmm. um, and he equips and qualifies, and he calls. And, you know, not every need is a call. That's another thing he really impressed upon me because, you know, I want to help everyone, and I want to do everything. And he says, no. He says, hold back. Listen to me. Stay close to me, you know, and I will show you where I want you to be working right now. You know, and the other thing is, too, the um, scripture in Galatians, bear one another's burdens um, to fulfill the law of Christ. That's, I believe, what we're actually here. Um, that's our purpose. And as you heal, I guess is, I don't know, that's a relative term, but as time begins to uh, give you some space between the actual event, it, it, you do end up integrating back into the larger group because then you get coping skills and you kind of know how to manage that better. So if there is someone right now that's saying, wow, like, I'm going to be stuck in this place forever. No, no, you won't. It will, God will give you the skills to help you kind of reintegrate into real life if you want to put it that way. And I think that's hopeful for people because when this has just happened, you do feel like uh, the, the world has stopped at times. Absolutely. Sure. It is an out-of-body experience. It, it truly is. So I just want to say quickly, too, you know, there's that old adage that time heals all wounds. I want to say to the audience, that is a crock. That is not true. Here's what time does. Time gives us space to reflect, to pray, to wrestle, to lament. Time is your friend right now. It may not seem like it, but I will say for sure, if you want to run ahead and not go through processing your grief and not journey through it, and avoid it, it's going to come out sideways and it's not going to be the healthy place you want to move toward. 
Yeah, that's good counsel as well. And for me, I, I found that at each kind of point in my progression after my wife's death and after my son's death that I had a specific choice to make. It was either toward God or away from God. And I'm just thankful that it was God protecting me because I very well could have made wrong choices all along the way. So God is also really involved with this process. It's not just up to us. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. Yes, for sure. Well, Julie, we're going to talk more when we get together next time um, about um, dealing with trauma and grief in the middle of this pandemic and all of those kinds of crazy issues. But I just want to thank you for your transparency. I'm really sorry that you've had to go through what you have. But your story is, is helping a lot of people, so thanks for telling it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. This is Life Support, and what we do here is we tell stories to help you find a deeper relationship with Christ through suffering and through trauma. And I want to thank our wonderful partners for Life Support. It's made possible by Faith Radio, which is www.myfaithradio.com, or Five Stone Media at fivestonemedia.com. That's where you can see a visual version of this. And then it's also produced by the church that I work with, Ridgewood Church, at myrwc.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. Would love to see you there. You know, uh, we've been talking a lot about Christ and who he is in the middle of suffering. But when the chips are down, we find out who God really is. And in Isaiah 41.10, the Bible tells us, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so let me encourage you that you are not alone, that it may seem dark, it may seem hopeless, but God is still working, and he's summoning you to a deeper relationship with him. So thanks for being here. We really do appreciate it, and we'll catch you next time on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support Podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at myfaithradio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.